protester. This is much more than those offensive comments from uh, Governor Rosario, which sparked these protests. It's about economic frustration. Uh, it's also about corruption in the government there. Uh, a lot of uh, people angering, simmer, angry, simmering tensions uh, over months erupting. I want to bring in someone who's familiar with that dynamic. Luis Miranda joins us on the phone. He's the father of Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, of course, of, uh, of Broadway fame, also a longtime New York City official and Hispanic advisor and native uh, of Puerto Rico himself. Uh, Luis, thanks for, for joining us. Help our viewers understand what this is really all about, people who haven't been following this that closely. Are, how significant is this, uh, this moment right now in Puerto Rican history? You know, many, many in the United States learned when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico almost two years ago on September 20th uh, that uh, Puerto Ricans were American citizens and that Puerto Rico is a territory uh, of the United States. So many will not know uh, why this is important. And again, as a Puerto Rican uh, living in the diaspora for a very, very long time, Puerto Rico takes the lead here. today because Mav uh, has decided to leave us all to our own devices. Heaven help us. Um, and I'm here today with Hannah. Hi. How's it going? Uh, you know, I think actually Mav and Wayne are recording the Wizard World show right now and we're yeah. doing something that's not at all the same. No, we are not. So this week um, we're actually talking about Puerto Rico um, because as most of our listeners are in the United States, uh, anyone who's paying attention to the news will notice that some stuff has been going down. Um, and as I mentioned on the blog post, outside of the fact that I know that Puerto Rico exists and it's an American colony, I don't know that much the substantive about it, even though it, that's that's kind of that's kind of unacceptable, frankly. And so I have uh, my friend here, Tony Rosa DeVito. Uh, who is a historian of the Caribbean um, and revolutions and cool stuff. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. And so he's going to talk about it with us today. So this is going to be a little bit more of a serious episode, so less drinking, possibly less swearing. Um, Although it may be called for. I don't swear on this show anyway, so. Yes, Hannah, Hannah's parents. Hannah does not swear on this show ever or in real life. As a grad student, I can vouch for this. So for folks that, that uh, have been watching the news, my understanding is basically what happened um, is the governor of Puerto Rico, Rosello's private text conversations were leaked. And in that contained a bunch of very inflammatory language, basically um, making fun of his own people up into people who had actually died during Hurricane Maria and all of that kind of thing. And that was basically like the final straw for a lot of people um, that started these like movement to get him ousted, which has now happened as of Thursday. Yeah. yeah. But there's I, I feel like there's more that's been going on. So could you talk a little bit about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the situation has been simmering for a long time. And I think you characterized it really well as being sort of the last straw uh, 
former governor at this point, Rosselló, uh, was becoming wildly unpopular um, in recent years, especially after the after the storm and his handling of it. Uh, the but the situation goes back way farther than that. Um, it goes back. I mean, certainly even before Hurricane Maria to the uh, fiscal control board that was imposed upon the island from Washington, because we, we have to remember that Puerto Rico has gone through a debt crisis, an extreme mm-hmm. debt crisis, then an extreme natural disaster. So and, when did the fiscal board thing happen? Uh, 2016. OK. And what exactly does that mean? So essentially, the, the super short version okay. is that uh, Puerto Rico's debt, according to Washington, uh, is it was it was extremely high. And they would have to pay, you know, pay oh, back right, their right. debts yeah, to the okay. United States. Yeah, yeah. So they imposed a fiscal control board um, that was meant to essentially restructure Puerto Rico's debt to, you know, to pay back loans to mm-hmm. the mainland to the United States. But what that entailed were pretty extreme austerity measures that cut down on social services, public schools were closed, uh, public sector workers were losing their jobs in mass. It's been a pretty rough situation in tandem with infrastructural collapse. So the situation was already boiling and there were protests. We've, we've sort of forgotten already there were massive protests mm-hmm. against the Junta Fiscal, the, 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 the Fiscal Control Board. And then the hurricane struck, right. right? Which completely destroyed. I mean, it completely decimated the island. I knew. I mean, my family. We were we were not in contact with my family in the mountains for months. Yeah, right. It was it was just an extreme situation. Just recently, um, has electricity been restored to the entire island? Which is just it's insane. And on top of that, there was a pretty serious loss of life during the storm. Right. There's at this point, uh, it's pretty much generally accepted that more than 4,000 people lost their lives either during the storm or immediately in its aftermath due to the faulty response from FEMA, from right. the federal government, and from the, the government in Puerto Rico, which the U.S. government officially denies. It just mm-hmm. straight yeah. up is, it just says, didn't happen. Yeah. Right. So there's also this, this simmering well, anger. They, yeah, they dispute the fatality counts and everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and so, so many people were furious after this, not just because of the conditions in which they were living after the storm, uh, but because it had been like their loved ones who had right. died in the storm. It just been erased. So, you know, there, there was not that loss of life. So how do you explain all of these? Right. And it's not the here? same response that happened. Exactly. In like Florida. And in, in tandem yeah. with uh, the current administration's response when, when you know, when, when Trump went down to Puerto Rico, uh, the thing everybody remembers is the footage of him, you know, yeah. standing in the, in the crowd, throwing paper towels out to yeah. the crowd. Uh, it was just an extreme insult to to so many people. And so on top of that, you have a governor who, because of his handling of all this and because of so much information that had come out, people viewed as corrupt. People knew this guy was corrupt. I mean, there right. there had been mounting protests against him for a number of months already. Uh, and then these tweets, you know, came right. out. And then these these this these private conversations came out. And what's interesting is for so many people, uh, it confirmed what they already knew, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he made extremely homophobic, extremely machista, extremely chauvinistic comments in, in his private conversations, which were atrocious and awful and need to be addressed. Everybody also knew that that's who that guy was, right? Right, everybody, but it's something about having it publicly yeah. affirmed. But also kind of like everybody knew about the allegations of corruption, but right. then it came out. But I think the big one was the fact that he made fun of people who had died. He had, he had made yeah. fun of like the bodies, like the remains of people who had died yeah. in the storm, which 
even among people who are on the more conservative end of the Puerto Rican spectrum. So that's enough. Yeah. Well, especially because like what you're saying is like part of it is he's implicated in the people like those people dying. Absolutely. Because we didn't see those fatality like numbers on the mainland, even though. Absolutely. Were, I mean, you know, uh, the, the distribution of food and medicines and um, any sort of like aid in, in terms of sanitation uh, was was just at best. At best, the distribution was faulty, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that certain supplies were being like sort of hoarded, and, and yeah. certain communities were getting things, and others weren't, and you know people were suffering because of this. So the Puerto Rican populace, and like I say, in, including people who normally would not be out in the streets, right? Uh, this infuriated them. Um, but even even this is tied to a longer longer history. Yeah, which so. I mean, this is one of the reasons we wanted to have this podcast episode, right? Is because, like, I mean, if anyone read the, read the blog post, um, I was thinking about this, especially in the context of, like, American public education, which is really the only time a lot of us will, like, learn about American history. And, like, for at least me, and I think, like, most people, like, Puerto Rico was a footnote. Like, basically, to a very attenuated discussion of, like, America internationally, which is also really interesting. The context, it's, like, often contextualizes, like, when we talk about other countries rather than about this is actually a part of the United States because you guys have had um, citizenship since 1917 1917 right um, and even even like during Maria there was like statistics going around that like 50 60 70 percent of Americans have no idea that Puerto Rico is a colony or anything about it um, which is kind of crazy so how like when I was doing some reading and preparing for this like I was read a statistic that was basically that Puerto Rico is actually the oldest colony in the western hemisphere yes so can you just talk about that a little bit because like how like how basically did puerto rico end up being an american colony so once again the 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 super short version is puerto rico has never has never had any sort of semblance of real autonomy or real um, real political independence because we have to you know we have to understand uh it was a spanish colony since Columbus, right? right? Just after Columbus's, you know, uh, first and second journeys to the to the Caribbean, uh, and it was it became a, a Spanish colony, and it wasn't until the well, we bring up public education here, what in schools here is referred to as the Spanish American War, which mm-hmm. for the most of the Caribbean and which all of Latin America in general uh, is not right, not called that. It is the you know the, the Spanish American Cuban War or the Cuban War for Independence. Those are, those are all very important. Uh, it's, it's more than semantics uh, for for people in the Caribbean. But Puerto Rico was essentially um, war treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was war booty at the end of of the the, the conflict in 1898 when the United States invaded the Philippines and they invaded Cuba and essentially kicked the Spanish out. Part of the negotiations were that the United States would also attain Puerto Rico. And so the the Puerto Rican actually, uh, just day before yesterday, uh, was the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico in 1898. uh, And they never left. Right. So the United States militarily occupied the island uh, for pretty much uh, ever since then. And, and, And they set up essentially a colonial apparatus that would manage the islands at the behest of, of Washington. And so it's it's a fascinating and little known chapter in American history because Puerto Rico becomes a U.S. colony uh, at the moment that the United States becomes an empire. It is the mm-hmm. birth of, of American empire. It is the birth 
of uh, outside of the continental United States, because there are those that, you, you know, you can you can go back to westward expansion and uh, U.S. conflicts with Native Americans mm-hmm. as being the first cases of North American imperialism. But uh, in, in this particular case, in terms of overseas empire, this is the birth of the. Amer- yeah, of like the of technical the like nation acquiring land. That yeah, is not uh, there, so. uh, um, American empire. Right. And so Puerto Rico was essentially treasure um, as part of this. They completely destroyed the, you know, the, the Puerto Rican currency. They basically tied it to the U.S. economy. And if you fast forward, 1917, the Jones Act is passed, which makes all Puerto Ricans U.S. citizens, whether you're on the island or not. Uh, my understanding not, is that was like compulsory. No, there was no vote. There was no, was there was like, no conversation. Right. Okay. Um, and so largely in, in sort of sort of layman's terms, right? They, they just kind of said, oh, you're U.S. citizens, you're welcome. But there was a lot of conflict within the U.S. government because the racism of the day, right. these are, you know, largely dark-skinned Spanish-speaking people. We don't want, you know, a state where that's the makeup. They speak Spanish. It's it's different. And this However, would have been before, like, Hawaii was a state as well, like, long um. Yeah. Before it was officially recognized as a state, right. but it was the, the U.S. was also occupying Hawaii. Right. Exactly. Right. So, um, essentially, the Jones Act was passed, however, as a war measure, right? Because the idea is they wanted cheap labor, they wanted uh, a strategic base in the Caribbean to prevent European um, expansion into the into the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, Puerto Rico, largely for most of its history, in terms of the the, the period of U.S. domination, goes to being a giant sugar refinery and a giant naval base, a giant military base, um, because it, because of its strategic lo- location, it's the entrance to the to the Caribbean. But remember, 1917, it's the eve of the First World War. The United States is about to enter the First World War. Mm-hmm. So when the Jones Act is passed, Puerto uh, Ricans become draftable. Yeah. Okay. So what's fascinating is since the First World War, Puerto Ricans have been you know, basically have been drafted and sent into the United States as foreign wars. And but yet on the island, if you live on the island, you, you cannot vote for president. You can vote for president if you leave the island, if you migrate to the mainland. And that is was sort of sold to the Puerto Rican population. And, and to be fair, has benefited many because there's unrestricted travel back right. and forth between the mainland and the island for Puerto Ricans. But uh, yeah, Puerto Ricans on the island kind of have not been able to vote, but they can they can absolutely be pulled into selective service and sent to fight. So the Jones Act is part economic, part a security measure against actually incorporating Puerto Rico as a state, but it's also a war measure to actually fill the ranks of the U.S. Army. So uh, in preparation for this episode, I've been working my way through like the Puerto Rico syllabus that professors have put together uh, since like Puerto Rico has become more current uh, in the mainstream news. And one article I read are Puerto Ricans, really American citizens, which kind of takes you through that history. Um, and whenever you read about Puerto Rico and citizenship, I think you get the sense that because of the history, being an American citizen is not the same just because it's founded up in the history of colonialism, not just because of all of the legal, the, the legal, right, the legal right. Uh, right. Yeah. right, because like, I mean, one of the things I want to talk about um, that I know both of you like read more about than I probably do. But um, it's like the way that it's not just that, like, I mean, we talked, we've talked about this previous episode, like colonialism, empire, all this kind of stuff is not necessarily just like military occupation and violent force, although that's a huge part of it. It's also the way that culture is weaponized to basically manipulate people or like 
basically change people's identity and self-conception of themselves, their conception of the relation of the world in order to basically make it easier to manage a population. Like, so I was reading a little bit uh, about sort of like Puerto Rican literature and especially, especially during under um, in the 18th and 19th century, a lot of it is like, I was kind of surprised actually by how self-deprecating a lot of it was. Um, like I was reading about some of like, like considered like the national poets were basically like writing poems about like how Puerto Ricans were naturally non-combative and like docile and all the other stuff, uh, which is like not uncommon. Like Puerto Rico is not unique in that. Like there's a lot of colonial empires either written by, um, and I guess that's the thing that kind of surprised me is it's usually when I've read it before, when I've come across that before in other contexts, it's usually the white colonizer writing that literature and then distributing it rather than it being like more homegrown, I guess, than I was seeing in Puerto Rico. Like why does that happen? I certainly, from my, from my perspective, I mean, it, it, it comes down to, I mean, the fact that the, the island changed owners, right? So for the longest time, I mean, Spanish, because you're talking about, you know, 18th and 19th century, right. when we're largely talking about what's Spanish colonialism and then people basically saying, like, you know, looking down upon, upon Creoles or Criollos, people who were, you know, of Spanish descent born in, you know, the so-called New World, born uh, in the Americas. Uh, so they were automatically looked at like, no, you have to remember your place vis-a-vis people from the peninsula, people from the mm-hmm. Iberian Peninsula. And then that sort of morphs into after U.S. involvement to being, oh, no, 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 no. The Spanish were barbaric. But that was better. But we, uh, you know, we being, you know, being the United States are coming and we're going to teach you about democracy. This very familiar thing Mm -hmm. where where Mm -hmm. you you have now like we are going to teach you about freedom and liberty. And so. Um, there is this sort of cultural like paternalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it very much, I mean, it very much rubs off, especially you have to remember too, that after the U.S. occupation for nearly, nearly a half century, English is enforced as the language of instruction on the island, right? English is, is, is the language of instruction. The, the history classes in schools in Puerto right. Rico are not teaching about Puerto Rican history. They're not teaching, they're teaching right. U.S. history. You're learning about George Washington. You're learning about Thomas Jefferson. Um, you're, you know, you're saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States. They, th- there is this, this sort of thing. There's another layer that goes even beyond that because as the island at different times faces these situations of like mass migration, be it forced or be it in the wake of a natural disaster like Maria, you have this massive diaspora. Today, about half of Puerto Ricans, period, do not live in the territory of Puerto Rico, do not live right. in the island. They particularly live in the mainland. And so when you've got more than a century of back and forth between Spanish, English, you're you're not a United States U.S. state, but the United States government also does not officially recognize them, doesn't say that it's a colony. They're, they're very aware. They're very aware. If you look at the documents at the time, well into the 50s and 60s, they're very aware that the colony is a bad word. Right. So that's why they don't officially call it that, right? It's a free associated state or a right. commonwealth, these other, these other sorts of things. But what it does is it, it absolutely impacts literature. It absolutely impacts art because you have that, that which is produced on the island and that which is produced in the diaspora in the United States. And only in recent decades has there been some sort of like reconciliation between the two. Because for many people who stayed on the island, particularly very nationalistic Puerto Ricans, saying, no, 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 we're going to fight for Spanish. We're not going to celebrate uh, Christmas in the same way. We, we, don't, we don't want your imported Santa Claus. We want Three Kings Day because mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's Catholic and mm-hmm. it is part of the Hispanic tradition. But then 
sort of looking down on these poets in, in you know, or, or artists in the United States or, or generally in the diaspora who are speaking Spanglish, right? Who both have these these ideas about what the island is, what the territory of Puerto Rico is, but also want their just dues here in the United States as equal citizens. And so there is this weird conflict that that still exists, but it, it is I would say it's getting better. So it's like the idea that the conflict between like some kind of like Puerto Rican like national purity and then like this weird like assimilationist tendency. Yes. And I think one of the, the one of the most beautiful things that has been going on since these protests lately is the the diaspora has very much been active in ways. I mean, what's fascinating yeah, is the diaspora. Was- the diaspora. Um, I mean, even even within my own family, is usually intensely filled with national pride. They're intensely nationalistic and do want to maintain those links to the island and to right. a sense of Puerto Ricanness. Uh, and so, the seeing the solidarity marches and all these things, and, and uh, having messages of solidarity going back from the island is unprecedented to this degree. There are moments of it that happen throughout the 20th century in particular. But this is a pretty unprecedented moment. So basically the, the diaspora is becoming a lot more active in terms of like talking of like, like the resistance movement or whatever. What's like fascinating? The political events of Puerto Rico. Like. Both, both, both have been active. They've never stopped being active. Oh, but, but they're, they're talking to together. each other. Oh, okay. I see. Right. Because what's fascinating is, I mean, certainly uh, in the, in the 20th century, all of the radical movements, particularly for Puerto Rican independence, um, as they had their own uprisings and were, you know, crushed usually very brutally, or they would have these gag laws imposed. Uh, they would blacklist people, activists or, or people who push for Puerto Rican independence on the island. And so in many ways, one of the ways out of poverty that you could get a job again, if you had been an activist is to go to the mainland. And so the idea was for the colonial apparatus, it's like, ha ha ha, we are exporting sort of the critics uh, of the colonial apparatus okay. to the mainland and they can be watched. What the problem is that they then exported most of the most radical Puerto Ricans to the mainland, which is why you have these pockets. I mean, particularly in Manhattan, um, in, in Chicago, in Boston, you have these very passionate activist communities of Puerto Ricans. And you have those that maintain on the island. Now uh, is one of these moments where they're actually talking to each other and they're working in tandem. Um, there, there were those moments in the past, the 60s, the late 60s, the early 70s, uh, sort of the radical moment here in the United States. That happens. Uh, but now we're seeing it in a, in a in a whole new way, which I think is a positive thing. Right. So that's like one of the other things. Is so this basically my understanding is like some form of either a reform or an independence movement has been going on basically since the beginning of Spanish occupation is like my understanding. But it's ebbed and flowed and changed throughout like throughout that history. My understanding right now is like the, like there's kind of like I mean this is probably a simplification, but like there's it breaks down roughly into two camps. Um, like one being like pro statehood, like people who want to assimilate into the United States formally as a state, a la Hawaii. Although seeing recently how that's working out for Hawaii, uh, also in the news. Um, and then people who want like full independence as a separate nation. Like, is that correct? Or is so there's it, or, three camps. Okay, there's three. Okay, there's three camps. And unfortunately, and the thing that complicates the situation is the biggest camp are the people right in the middle, right? So, okay. so what you have is you have the pro statehood movement. Um, and, and it tends to be the more conservative side of the population. It tends to be not always not, I don't, I don't want to make too, too many blanket statements, but they tend to be a little bit better off. Um, but they do have, what's interesting is they 
phrase, especially recently, their push to have the United States annexed and incorporated into the United States as a form of decolonization, right? As a way of saying like, ah, we're existing in limbo and that's why we're getting the shaft. If we were just actually treated as the American citizens that we are. Yeah, which in a technical sense is sort of true in the sense that they would no longer be a colony. Right. But it also means like you're I mean, I actually Hawaii is a good example. Like Hawaii, a lot of it's I mean, in the news right now, um, there's a lot of discussion of basically like what the indigenous rights are. It's basically like there's uh sure a tele like basically a tele uh, there's a telescope pro- proposed to be built on a traditionally religious site. Um, so like clearly that hasn't worked out. Yeah. So I guess I like I guess the thing that confuses me about that. I mean, I understand from like from a, like a certain pragmatic point of view, especially economically, like why why that makes sense. But I guess the thing that I find really odd is like especially seeing what's happened to other populations who have sure. done that. Why there's that assumption that you wouldn't be, especially culturally, kind of like bulldozed. Well, one of the, well, that's the big that's the pushback, right? Okay. The, the pushback is like sure, maybe the economy of the island would improve, but at what cost? Okay. Right. At what cost? And that's where you get this intense nationalistic sort of sort of pushback. Uh, the, the, the stated movement is is interesting in that they tend to, at least in my opinion, also overlook the fact that by and large, I mean, well over 50 percent of the island lives below the poverty line. That's I, the numbers have probably gotten a little bit worse since since right. the storm. And even within the United States, historically, the Puerto Rican community is quite impoverished. So the idea is once statehood is attained, how do you get that population out from poverty, essentially? Like, they're, they're, are they going to, even if you are officially being recognized as full U.S. citizens in the purest sense of the form, if you're still at the bottom of the barrel... Right. Within U.S. society, like what good did you? So that's when you have this other camp, which is the independent, right? The independent right. thesis of people who want independence. Those who actually take part in the political referendums seek to do so through the ballot box. Unfortunately, none of the referendums that come up with that they love, the media loves to make these big deals about these referendums about Puerto Rico stems. The problem is they're non-binding. They're extremely expensive and they're non-binding. Um, so wait, just so I understand. So it's basically like the island is having its own vote about they do it every few years right but like that vote means nothing yeah it, it does not the last vote in 2017 uh, mostly boycott but boycott by like a large population yeah exactly exactly so the thing is this and this brings us to the third camp which is the mass in the middle okay. so you have those who through the parliamentary process want to attain statehood you have those who through the parliamentary process want to somehow gain independence and then the majority Right. This is this giant chunk of people in the middle who basically say one of three things. There has been they themselves are divided. Okay. Some of them say, well, the status quo is the safest because we are a state. We're going to have this erosion of our culture and all these other things. But this the common theme that comes up in all independence movements. Independence means we're going to start. We're going to we're going to we're going to be in an even worse situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you've got in that same camp pro statehood people. Who say, yeah, I would love to be a U.S. state. But the problem is U.S. government's racist. The situation is completely insane in Washington. They're not going to add another star to their flag. They're not just going to incorporate right. a as a state, a large group of Spanish or Spanglish speaking people 
Uh, and the thing is, the population on the island is great enough that Puerto Rico would be a swing state, and neither of the two major parties mm-hmm. want another battleground state to sort of contend with. Right. So there are, the, there are stated people like, they're not going to just give us statehood. But then, ironically, the most radical wing of the independence movements are also in this sort of middle camp because they say they're never going to grant us independence through the parliamentary process. And by the way, by participating in these referendums, we are validating the the colonial apparatus, right? And these tend to be, and this is a growing number of people, tend to be the people in the streets. These tend to be the people who are also involved in some of the more radical movements for Puerto Rican independence, uh, which which very much exist. Um, Most North Americans don't know it. There are armed organizations in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. who have declared war on the United States government who are still in operation. Uh, That's just kind of a not discussed uh, sort of thing, but that also falls into this category. So it's all of this is a microcosm for Puerto Rico's status, the, the limbo that Puerto Rico finds itself in, and that's why you get these these conflicts even within Puerto Rican society to say, well, who are we? Because there are plenty of people, and with good reason, who say, like, no, we are we are North America, we are Americans. You know, my grandfather went and he he hit the beaches at Normandy with with everybody else's grandfather. We're Americans, right? Yeah. We want our just dues as as being Americans. And then on the other hand, you have the communities that say we've gotten the rawest deal. Well, and also like this. the only reason that happened is because like our island was handed exactly to the United was States. literally like, handed. Right, that's the thing, and we were not consulted. Right. Uh, so that's the that's the complicated situation. But there is. The more radical elements of the independence movement are growing. I think you're seeing that in the streets now. Because what I found fascinating is when these these protests began, initially, the first two days or so, mm-hmm. it was Puerto Rican flags and American flags that you saw in the crowd. The second rubber bullets start flying and, and Ricky says he's not going to resign, there's a shift. There's a change. And now you're seeing the black protest flags. You're seeing the the Puerto Rican independence flags, which is the same Puerto Rican flag, but it's got a light blue uh, triangle instead of the dark blue one. The dark blue one is represents, you know, sort of the, the, mm-hmm. the American flag. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this shift. And finally, there is this snowballing. And, and, and this is the big the, the, the next big battle that these people are going to face, which is, OK, what now? Because there is this understanding that this was never just about this particular governor. This was never just about the, the Junta Fiscal. This wasn't just about Hurricane Maria. This is, we are here because of this because long of history. Like of years of- we, have to, we have to address that in some way. Right. How that's going to be done is going to be determined by those people on the island, by those people on the street. Right. But that is something that we are in a unique position as observers right now to witness. We are witnessing a moment when what erupts is largely a spontaneous events or a series of events that had been gaining steam, right? It was finally the match dropped on the, the public gasoline. What we are seeing is the moment in which that process radicalizes. Right. And we're watching it in real time, which right. is rare. Because like one of the things I, when I like, kept coming up when I was reading was the idea that like, especially like the difference between um, like Puerto Rico and Cuba is basically that like in, in Cuba, they were like successfully got a mass movement of the people going, whereas in, in Puerto Rico, like, like there were like a lot of like, I don't want to say like failed starts, but basically movements that kind of like petered out because like the head figure, whoever the leader was, was imprisoned, killed, whatever. And there wasn't that sort of like mass motivation by the people. So once like the upper echelons of the movement um, 
were removed for whatever reason, apparently partially by sending them to the mainland, sure. as I'm finding out. Um, those movements kind of petered out, like, without that kind of momentum. Yeah, I mean, the big difference also is that uh, the, the Cuban Revolution came to power um, through an armed struggle. Right, so that right? was... At a, very different, at a very different moment, and they, they succeeded in, 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 in attaining their, at the very least, their, their political independence. Uh, the, it's not the case that there were not attempts. I mean, the armed struggle in Puerto Rico predates the Cuban Revolution. The issue comes down, I think, to a number of things, uh, some of which I think you've, you've hit on. Uh, one is, is the class makeup of the original independence movement, um, who they were talking to. It took a while for those movements to reach more of the lower classes. I think another thing, too, comes down to strategy and tactics. What's very fascinating is the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, which initiated the armed struggle against the United States in the 1930s, they very much had an affinity, not so much with the guerrilla warfare that we associate with the Cuban Revolution or or the Sandinistas in Nicaragua with, you know, these bearded guerrillas going out to the jungle. They uh, they took their cues from the Irish. They 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 created bonds with the IRA in the earliest you know years of the, the uh, of Irish independence. Where they basically they drew these parallels, you know, Pedro Albizu Campos, the most famous sort of revolutionary, uh, you know, leader in the in the history of the independence movement in Puerto Rico, looked very much to the Irish. Where he said, "Oh, there's another small Catholic, well, predominantly Catholic island right. that is that is being oppressed by you know a a, a Protestant, uh, you know, a Protestant, you know, oppressor, mm-hmm. and like we can we can do that." And so they very much. You know, things like political assassination, bombs going off in the cities. They were very, the, the early nationalist uprisings were very symbolic in the sense that they would do things like, okay, we're not going to go out to the mountains and fight for five years. We're going to shoot our way into the governor's mansion and try to assassinate the governor. Or we're going to attack an American military base to drop the American flag and raise the Puerto Rican flag. Very powerful, right. symbolic so acts as opposed to like that trying, murder everybody. Right, as opposed to like controlling ground, they're looking for like these much more like political and ideological. Controlling ideological ground. Controlling right. the, like to motivate a wider a wider uprising. Uh, the biggest uprising happens in 1950. Um, it's actually the only time that the United States, on the one hand, the United States government, you know, uses its own air force to bomb its own citizens. Because Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, so they bomb the island, but as well as the fact that they're the largest court martials in U.S. Army history. Mass court martials because they call in the Puerto Rican Infantry, you know, division to quell parts of the you know, the uprising, and many of them refuse to fire on their countrymen. And we have to remember this is 1950. Puerto Ricans are getting shipped off to go fight in Korea, right? And they're not doing well, right? They're 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 there's a pretty significant loss of life. The Korean War is actually extremely, and the Truman presidency and into the Korean War is extremely controversial. Uh, in the history of Puerto Rico, but that's that's a major difference. There are other armed organizations that still exist that are taking a more stealthy approach, that are taking a more uh, you know a, a protracted struggle approach. But I think one of the big things that you know, and then the question you sort of you sort of raise is on the strategy when when, you, when martyrdom is your you know, mm-hmm. your main your main course of action, and in those moments when they export uh, the the most most of the radicals to the mainland, that means that a lot of these armed activities happened in the mainland, right? Um, so there was an attempt at the life of President Truman in 1950 at Blair House. There was uh, the attack on the House of Congress in 1954, led by Lolita Lebron, a young Puerto Rican nationalist, uh, a young woman, Puerto Rican nationalist who, uh, I mean, they, for after after this attack, they were some of the longest held U.S. political prisoners. 
you know, uh, they're spending nearly, you know, 130 years in, in prisons for their actions. So always to draw global attention to the situation of Puerto Rico, that was the general consensus because they, they were aware, like, there's there may be no way that we can openly defeat the U.S. Army. But what we can do is draw global attention to the issue. And and it, it created a lot of martyrs doing so. Actually, had, I kind of had a question for you because, like, just talking about that, I mean, you're also the person uh, on this podcast in this virtual room that has, like, the most experience specifically with British Empire, right? Yes. So, like, I guess, like, how I, I don't know other than, like, the basic, you know, American history textbook and then, like, things in college, how basically the British Empire came to fall apart. Um so I guess like how, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm asking for like historical context in comparison with other places. Well, to be fair, uh, I study the time when the British Empire is at its height uh, and, it does, and it doesn't start to really fall apart until the 20th century. But, um, you know, like I, I definitely see um, comparisons of how like empire operates between the two. Like uh, when Tony, you were describing, you know, the like forcing uh, students uh, to learn American history or speak English. I, I mean, that that's tactics that mm-hmm. the British have used. Um, you know, I, you know, right. Cause part of it is it's like the, the colonizing country wants you to, th- wants you to think that you are part of their country. Like there's, I mean, it's like, uh, I think the most concrete example to me is like uh, the relationship that Britain has with India. It's like the amount, the amount of like uh, the diaspora, like Indian diaspora that's ended up there. And like this weird, I've talked to a few people about this, about this weird kind of relationship between the two of like, especially now that it's no, like no longer a colony. There's still a lot of vestiges of that there. There's still a lot of mixed identity and like families that are kind of like split between the two locations because of sort of like the history of their family and what happened to them for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you can look at India, you can look at Ireland, you can look at many uh, former colonies to see like, like decolonization is very messy and you can still feel um, like the effects of empire to the state. But, you know, the, I mean, like the British Empire still has a lot of stuff that is yeah. like in their empire. Like it didn't just like completely collapse and fall apart. Um, and the British decided to pack up and go home. Um, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people think that empire is in the past and they forget about uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines or even the history of Hawaii, or they mm-hmm. tend like, you know, Australia has just always been full of uh, white people speaking uh, vaguely Britishy. Technical term. That is, yes, that is a technical term. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that also um, a question a lot of people have who don't study empire or think about revolutions is like why uh, violence is so involved in attempts at independence or the decolonization process. Like, I think that um, people who don't know much about Puerto Rico think that the, you know, vote uh, for statehood in the referendum actually means something. Yeah. Uh, even I though mean, this is where I, I like, I like to go to France Fanon, who's my favorite. Uh, but right. Cause like, this is actually something in a very different context I write about in, in my dissertation, um, which weirdly has a revolution on an island in a video game in it, which is a separate thing. Um, although sort of related, I guess. Uh, because like, I think, because Tony, you were describing kind of the factions earlier, like a lot of it is sort of like conflict between like, is like, like either is like violent revolution the thing that we want or is it plausible? 
and like wanting to go this like parliamentary route. And I mean, I guess because like as as a cultural scholar, like I'm thinking more about like the literature and the cultural aspects of this, right? And then Fennell ha- says that the most psych- kind of like he's a um, psych- uh, psychoanalyst, so like for him, like the, one of the most insidious things about the harm of, of colonial empire is not just the violence, the poli- and the political and economic like colonization. It's like the colonization point, and it's so basically people like being taught by like uh, by the United States, for example. Um, that they're incapable of independence or revolution or that like their identity, biology, whatever is such that they like basically like they couldn't hack it more or less. And he talks about this specifically with Algeria. Um, and one of the things that he says that fixes that is violent revolution. Like he believes that violent revolution is necessary to like undo that. Yeah. When I, when I use fun with my students, um, and we, you know, we, we talk about, you know, we, we, we reread portions of Wretch of the Earth. I use mm-hmm. the analogy of a schoolyard at recess, and there's the bully that's going to take your lunch money, and he's been bullying you. He's been taking your lunch money for a long time, and you've just been completely scared of this bully. He's picking on you, and he's picking on you, and he's picking on you. And then there's that one day where you decide that that's enough, and you punch him in the nose. The ensuing fight that happens from that, you may lose. Right. You may you may get beat up by this bully, but it's an almost guaranteed thing that in pushing them back, pushing this bully back, you are no longer afraid of that bully. You have shed your fear of it. And it shows that the bully can bleed, too, even if you lose. Right. So you push that back to a societal level in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of decolonization. That's the kind of thing that I think Fennan is is often talking about in the fact that there is a there is a liberating, right, a liberating violence. And it shouldn't be um, it should not be, you know, uh, non-discriminatory. It should not be uh, it should not be thug- thuggery, you know, if you will. But right. but that there is a liberating violence. And and that's the thing. In terms of Puerto Rico, uh, they they there were those that that have taken that route uh, because the parliamentary option has not worked. I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, there were massive debates. There, the, the the first generation of Puerto Rican politicians after Spain left that were put into office or or, or elected into office to uh, deal with the United States government believed in in the the North American idea because the United States, they had not perceived the United States as being, they were the beginning of the their empire. They right. were the beginning of it. They they did not have the, this conception. The, the Cubans were the same way for a long time. Uh, the idea that like, maybe these people are actually going to help us out there. The problem is it, it didn't work out that way. And so there are cases, just as many cases of some of the very nationalist leaders that choose armed struggle uh, in Puerto Rico, attempted other mechanisms first. Uh, I mean, Pedro Albizu Campos, for example, got a scholarship to go to Harvard. Uh, you know, and this is an, this is a, a Puerto Rican of color uh, who, who gets a law degree, you know, from Harvard Law, and serves. He volunteers and serves with distinction in the First World War. But he experiences racism in the continental United States. He experiences uh, and, and witnesses how he and his uh you know his his countrymen are being described and discussed in in the halls of power within the united states and he witnesses that and uh you know 
comes back with a very different attitude. So what's interesting is the radicalization of that doesn't happen on the island. It happens here on the mainland in the United States. Um, that is actually in, very in, surprising. In, why, in, in, in how you uh, or how, how they saw the U.S. government sort of talking about the future of Puerto Rico without consulting Puerto Ricans. Well, and especially like that, like reflects, I think, in many ways, like the, the relationship, like most Americans who don't have personal ties to Puerto Rico. Like, I mean, like even I mean, like the amount of comments I was finding when I was like sort of like doing some research for this episode of people like the I mean, I, I feel like we see these every time that Puerto Rico comes to the news is like Americans assuming like talk, talking about Puerto Rico as if it's a foreign country. And it's unclear sometimes. Sometimes it's very clear that they actually think it's a foreign country. Absolutely. And then other times it's like it doesn't matter. Like it like even even if it wasn't, they're just like, oh, well, op- like functionally it's different because I think because of the same things you said, it's, it's about the racial tensions. It's about the like language difference and the like feelings a lot of Americans have about people who speak Spanish, which is a whole different thing. Reminder, English is not the official language of the United States, technically. Anyway, sorry, Hanny, you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to just say that um, there's this case at the beginning of the 20th century that dealt with these territories like Puerto Rico and Guam and the Philippines called Downs versus Bidwell. And the Supreme Court wrote a decision that is not good. Uh, but in that, they describe these territories as, quote, foreign to the United States in a domestic sense. And like, you know, used a descriptor of the territory being unincorporated. Um, yeah. So like there's actually a book that deals with this kind of idea called foreign in a domestic sense. Um, if you're interested in reading more about not just Puerto Rico, but these other territories. Um, but I think that like that kind of phrase foreign in a domestic sense really kind of captures how a lot of people who recognize that Puerto Rico does have a relationship with the United States. Paradoxical, de- paradoxical description. Like, yeah, those are two things that are generally mutually exclusive. You are either domestic or foreign. But like, I mean, Puerto Rico, but like, and, and colonies in general, like, is is exactly that. Like, you are part. You are ostensibly the colony is part of the motherland or whatever you want to call it. The metropole. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um, yeah. But but function but 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 cult like is culturally. I mean, culturally and politically and economically influenced by the colonial empire, but it isn't like isn't the same. Like Puerto Rican culture is obviously very different from mainland United States. In it, a lot of ways. It, it is. And it's, it's, and not. it's not. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it is. Um, and certainly, and certainly many, many Puerto Rican nationalists would, would, would absolutely um, agree with you. On the other hand, after so many years of U.S. domination, I mean, literally it changed right. the language. Right. It changed, it changed the language to the, to the point where, I mean, even when I, you know, when I travel abroad, most of my work is in Cuba personally. Uh, and when I go, they don't know what to make of my Spanish. Because it's this weird hodgepodge. It's it's not perfect. It's chock full of Spanglish. It's right. a little bit of it's. It, I, I do a Cuban accent very often because I'm used to working there. But on the other hand, I mean, my Spanish is very Puerto Rican at the same time. So they don't know what to make of it. And so things like that. I mean, it, it, in terms of you brought up you brought up literature. We talk about film, right? Only only very recently is like there a prominent Puerto Rican sort of film industry of note where people are talking about Puerto Rican issues in their films on the island. Very rarely are those for consumption on the mainland. Very rarely do we hear about that, right? Like Puerto Rican cinema is John by and large American cinema. It's the things that we are consuming in the theater. So it's, it's yes, the thing that we call Puerto Rican culture is distinct and it is very real, but it is constantly 
been influenced by not only North American culture, but the rest of the Caribbean, because this is right. the thing. at the end of the day, and this isn't just a colonial thing. This isn't just this is it's not just a capital P political thing. Uh, this is an island thing, right? This is a region of the world where people have always moved back and forth, right? Uh, there is an indigenous past where, where you know, you know, certain things linger from that. There is an intense uh, West African influence. There is. Um, there is a French influence. There's all of these things that, that I mean, the thing that we call Puerto Rican culture is by its very nature creolized. Mm -hmm. um, the things that when people talk about a, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the United States as, as a way of combating uh, the infringement of North American culture, it's things like the Spanish language. It's things like particular kinds of music. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's not a joke. There was like, there was like... <laughs> Puerto Rican Christmas wars. That's a thing, right? So there like, is an actual war on Christmas, but it don't There is an actual war. Like the idea, or I should say a war between two competing Christmases. It's like, you know, like the idea, I mean, think about this. So like it's, a traditional like Puerto Rican style, like Catholic Christmas be... Or I just like, mean like, well, so in most cases they celebrate Three Kings Day, right? So you okay. change gifts the day that supposedly the, the Three Kings came and presented, you know, gifts to... to this is one of those to, moments to, in which the fact that I baby, have no religious... To baby, to baby Christ. Right? That's a very sort of like Spanish-speaking Latin America thing. Okay. Versus, you know, Jolly Saint Nick coming down the right. Like, so I mean, think about this. Think about it. And there were, there's these amazing well, political Santa posters from the '60s and '70s. Exactly. Yeah. Where they're no, like, wait, wait, wait. Right. You're no, you're in San Juan. What the hell does a Christmas tree and right. fake snow and this like scary white guy who's entering your home? What does this have to do with with your traditions, right. with your culture? No, I, so, yeah, so for example, um, the, the the People's Army of Puerto Rico, the, one of the the armed organizations, they're called the Macheteros, uh, that are in operation today. They're a little more quiet, but they still very much exist. They just are still on the U.S. terrorist watch list. They staged in the '90s the largest bank heist in U.S. history by knocking over uh, a Wells Fargo like sort of money holding center. Uh, in an industrial part of, of Hartford, Connecticut. And the money that they got from that, one of the first things they do, most of it is used to fund the rest of their movement. Well, the first thing they do as a publicity campaign is there in Hartford, they staged a massive Three Kings Day celebration where they gave out toys to like, you know, uh, you that's know, actually really impoverished, cool. Impoverished children in, right. the, in the neighborhood, including the children of police, like anybody could come but they made it like a Puerto Rican cultural event. Like, no, this is what we celebrate. We do this. Right. So even these armed movements incorporating these particular sorts of like things. Cultural touchstones. Of yeah, like, exactly. What and exactly. Right. Um, that's, I think, I think absolutely crucial because when we talk about Puerto Rican culture, there's a few things that we could go like, ah, that are kind of universal. Like I said, the language, right. some of the music. But on the other hand, it's always been a, it's always been a hodgepodge. It's an island. It's well, especially it's like with, with like you were mentioning earlier, like citizenship did allow for like free transit between the mainland and Puerto yeah, Rico. So and, it's and like I'm sure a lot of us. like at like people leave to get education, come back. If, if they can, from. yeah, there's, um, there is, it's, I mean, the, the, the Puerto Rican nation, if, if we can describe it as such, is, is transspatial, right? If, if, if that makes sense. In that, I would say Puerto Ricans, it's a different situation, but there are similarities. Puerto Ricans are very similar to Palestinians in that, 
that there are communities all over, right? There are communities in the in the mainland of the United States. There are communities in other parts of Latin America that are Puerto Rican first. You stay Puerto Rican and you 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 continue to maintain ideas about what that island represents, what that island is, um, culturally, politically, artistically, linguistically. But you are spread to the five corners and you're in constant migration. So there's this interesting idea of like Puerto Rico is in itself uh, a cultural archipelago. That's that's all over the place. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a unique thing. And that's something similar that they think something that we as Puerto Ricans have in common with Palestinians in that we, there are, there is a diaspora, and it, but with very clear um, connections, even if they are imaginary uh, to the physical no, space, makes, I mean, to the physical space that is the island. Of no, Puerto that makes sense. Cause even like, I mean, one of the reasons that we can start this episode was like, uh, what you thought was funny actually initially was like, as, as we have brought up on the podcast several times, I am deep into like knitting and sewing Twitter and Instagram. More mostly Instagram. Rich. I look on Twitter. And the way I found out about the news in Puerto Rico was every single Puerto Rican person I follow, which I found out is actually a much larger population than I like. There's a few prominent sewists in the community that are Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, some of the biggest ones, oddly enough. Um, and they were posting about all this stuff. So I was seeing all this like very intense political stuff and like people supporting everything that were coming. So yeah, I, I don't get it. I'm just like, oh, okay. Now, like, yeah, like fiercely Puerto Rican and like much more so than like I follow a lot of people like from all over the world and like Africa, parts of Asia, whatever. Like that is not something I had quite seen. Like that level of like national identification. Um, and part of it, I think, was like the moment that was happening and like wanting to be supportive of what was going on. And particularly because most of them were on the main are on the mainland mm-hmm. and have family yes. in Puerto Rico, yes. um, presumably many of which were in the streets and they were concerned um, about their physical safety, especially with a lot of the policing that's been going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can I can speak to my own my own household. Right. I, I was not born on the island of Puerto Rico. Right. I was I was born in the Midwest and my mother was not born in the island of Puerto Rico. Her, her parents are the ones that migrated from the island in the 50s. Uh, but you're raised as Puerto Rican first. First and foremost, and there is this interesting, even even among people who would consider themselves American, like North American, like you know, hot dogs and apple pie, and also rice and beans and plantains. Like North American, uh, there's an old saying: "Is like you scratch the surface, there's a nationalist underneath." There's still a rejection, even among those communities of total assimilation. Um, I mean, like the comes, idea of like still wanting to be like very Puerto Rican. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, so for example, it was a big deal when Puerto Rico, even though it's a U.S. territory, when it, the, the fact that it gets to represent itself in international sporting events, huge deal. You know, a huge deal for Puerto Ricans. Oh, I believe, yeah. Uh, you know, the um, you know people still talk about on the island a number of years ago when the Puerto Rican national basketball team like beat the American. And they, they still t- this was a wild. I imagine event. that's like the, the equivalent of still. Like, oh my god! I'm sure it's the equivalent of like the American v Russia like hockey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I mean, Puerto Ricans. Basketball is like this is your shit. Like we were, <laughs> like you you and, gave us and, this. And yeah, and now yeah, we and we yeah. got him. Yeah. Um, so oh, so beautiful. you know so things like that. But I mean, I remember I was raised. You're, you're raised as you know as sort of Puerto Rican first, and I think that so much of this there's this like sense of collective anger mm-hmm. at the idea that I mean, so many of us whose grandparents, particularly those that came in the fifties, 
They came in the 50s because there was an active effort to depopulate the island, right? These weren't necessarily... On the part of the United States. On the part of the United States government. There was not necessarily... And you talk to a lot... Was it to, like, quell basically, like, the independence movement or, like, unrest? Uh Uh-huh. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, The biggest thing was they wanted to control physically the the population. Right. uh, And in sort of the post-war economic boom, they wanted cheap labor in the factories in the mainland. Right. So what they essentially did was uh, they called it Operation Bootstrap, where there was these economic measures put in place where they would bring more and more U.S. industry to the island in these, like, tax-free havens, basically. But what they would do is they would entice Puerto Ricans to be like, listen, it's overcrowded here. Come to the mainland. Yeah. Good jobs. The whole thing. And my grandfather came at that particular time. And there's I mean, there's cases where they're I mean, they're literally being packed like sardines into transport planes, you know, with like, you know, folding beach chairs. And Mm -hmm. most of them are speaking Spanish. They can't complain. There's no problem with immigration because they're U.S. citizens. So Mm -hmm. there's no red tape to cut through. So it's instantaneously a cheap labor force. And they go to places, you know, factories in New York, steel mills in Chicago. Um, next to sort of agricultural laborers from Mexico in terms of immigrants, the second highest number of migrant agricultural workers for most of the 20th century in the United States were Puerto Ricans. There's a reason why there's a, there's a large Puerto Rican community in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. which there's, there is the stuff about Hawaii in the news is finding its way in the protests in Puerto Rico as well. Because they're like, Oh, there's these massive plantations, these pineapple plantations in in, in Hawaii. Um, let's export islanders from one place to another. Yeah, it's go from cheap, one island to the other. Labor. The other island, and right. what the, the problem is, what many of these people, particularly those who came in the fifties, experienced was it was not necessarily many, many people did well, but the vast majority were crammed into urban slums. That's where you right. get these these Puerto Rican enclaves, like, you know, Humble Park in Chicago, where you get El Barrio in Spanish Harlem in New York. There, there is absolutely that. And what's fascinating is the ones that were activists on the island. They raise kids that are activists. And so when you get to the 1960s and 1970s, the next generation of sort of Puerto Rican independence fighters Mm -hmm. are doing so in the United States. I guess the last thing I would say before getting to your final thing, I think that it is it it is important to recognize two things. One, that these protests, because we've been talking about Puerto Rican history and we began with talking about what is happening right now, uh, is that these protests are the largest uh, they're unprecedented in, in terms of their size and in terms of how they've been sustained day after day after day. These are these are pretty serious and the, the, we're seeing something kind of new. On the other hand, they have these links. This is something that has been gaining steam for a long time. And the big question now uh, and something that's given me personally quite a bit of hope is seeing so many people on the island and in the diaspora saying, OK, this was Ricky's gone. We did that. Shows what we can do. But Let's like, now, keep now the going. Thing. Because here's the thing: is replacement is responsible largely for the faulty distribution of of supplies right. after after the storm. And then if they get rid of her, the person after that, this right. entire like every, government, everyone is, who's involved in politics is somehow connected, not just with that, but with also like at like all of the problematic policies. They are very much aware that this the entire administration in Puerto Rico is corrupt. Right. But what is giving me even more hope than that, because they already knew that, is they are saying, ah, maybe there's something different that needs to happen here, because right. what's to say the next group won't be? And so it will be interesting to watch how that plays out at the grassroots level, both on the island, in the diaspora, where Puerto Ricans themselves begin to wake up from the myths 
that that they have the state that they have put in in U.S. domination of the island has respected them in return, right? They're, right. So there's people starting to wake up from that. So it's like a cultural pivot as much as it is sort of like an ideological it's, one. It's potentially both, right? And it's happening in real time, and it's very rare that people get to to witness that. And I think it's important for us to to keep an eye on. And I've been very disappointed, particularly locally here um, in North Carolina. In North Carolina, yes, here in North Carolina, um, in a in a in a place that certainly over the last two years has been extremely politically active and, 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 and other, it's silent. There's silence uh, yeah. on this issue. Uh, and so that's, that's been disappointing, but I've been extremely heartened by, by developments on the Island and the fact that people aren't stopping. They're taking their time to celebrate, which is the most Puerto Rican thing ever. <laughs> uh, they're enjoying that. They're enjoying that. And they are dancing and, and yeah, the I saw some of the Puerto Rican musicians. I mean, Ricky Martin, Ricky Martin was brave in the tear gas with the rest of them. I mean, so many people have canceled their tours. They're they're and they're sticking around. Uh, and there's there's slogans, there's posters popping up. There's graffiti popping up that said, you know, first Ricky, next the colony. Uh, and then that's that's extremely heartening. So hopefully, you know, um, hopefully uh, the, there's a wind that's blowing where Fanon's methodology uh, isn't necessary. But um, but I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> I doubt it in, in, in the long term. But I am heartened. And I, I, I think that this is an opportunity right now where U.S. imperialism and U.S. colonialism in Puerto Rico, in Guam, in Hawaii, in these in these different places is on trial and people yeah. are talking about it more, I think, in a, in a really positive way. Uh, and, and I think people are learning about it more. And, and we'll see what happens because the Puerto Ricans have showed us a lot, certainly about things that we can get done here. Uh, right. You know, they, they, they've showed us a lot. I mean, so that was kind of my last question is because we've talked about you. You answered my other uh, final question because I was wanted to talk a little bit about like what this kind of means for especially the Puerto Rican diaspora in the in the U.S. Um, but I guess also when you're touching, touching on like the lack of noise in North Carolina um, and nationally even. I mean, even even with what's going on in Puerto Rico, like it it's still like like as of today has almost disappeared from mainstream U.S. news. Um, it, it, there's still stories, but they're not as big um, mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, the governor's gone, fine. It's um, over. Story's done. Right. Yeah. So they've kind of like moved on. Yeah. Also because our president is a trash fire. Um, you know, the so the only thing I've really seen by people who are located here who are not part of the Puerto Rican community is, you know, I think we can learn something about getting rid of Donald Trump. Yeah, I've seen I've yeah. seen those. It's sort of like, oh, oh, it can be done, which is uh which is interesting actually. Um but no, so like I guess what especially for people who may, may like may not have strong ties to Puerto Rico, like what does this actually, if anything, mean for like Americans, like of, of the United States? Because on the one hand, I mean, again, we always point out like the Randall, the Randall white chick uh, that I am um, like on the one hand, like I'm, I'm in, I'm invested as I'm sure some of our listeners are like in not being part of an empire in my country. Um, but on the other hand, like I, I'm not Puerto Rican. You answered um, your own question. I think, I think you answered your own question right there. I think that the first thing is, I mean, so many people either have not been confronted with or refuse to admit that they live in an empire. That's a major step. If more and more people understand that that is the political, social, and physical, in terms of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is not a neo-colony. Like, we haven't addressed the difference between colonialism and neo-colony. Neo-colonialism is alive and well all over the world. Right. But Puerto Rico is a traditional colony. There's a foreign army that occupies it, right? 
that has used colonial troops in its foreign wars, right? Puerto Rico in that situation has a lot in common with, with, you know, uh, with a lot of, you know, um, imperial subjects throughout, throughout, you know, the history of, of colonialism and imperialism around the world. I think, I think it's important for Americans to say, like, why, why are these people so angry? Um, and say, like, you know, do this, this, this self-reflection where they say, oh, well, they're technically U.S. citizens. And they, yet they've had a really raw situation. And where does this come from? How does, how is it historically operated? Um, but, but I mean, that's, that's all very, very academic as well. I mean, I think, I think it's a major step for people to just be like, oh, I know the word empire is a dirty word. Right? We are, we are raised, right? We, right. we are. Because like, well, we've talked, I was going to say, we talked about this in the American mythologies episode. And like, I think that was part of what I was talking about. Like, I think of like my blog post was that like, this goes both ways. Like there's also a mythology taught to, uh, Amer- like people in the United States on the mainland mm-hmm. of like, we're not an empire. Like the only time I remember Puerto Rico being mentioned in my public education at all was specifically sort of like, oh, we fought that we, we fought the British because we exactly. to be a colony. Yeah, yeah, and then there's like a little footnote, like, oh, by the way, we have one. And basically, and I don't even think it was my teachers were unwilling to address the paradox. They were not equipped. And I'm yeah, like, and which I imagine is intentional. It's not the fault of most North Americans, right? Like, right. They, they're, this is not information that's read. I mean, even when I was trying to find books that weren't like heavily whitewashed, out, like things that aren't in Spanish, because I recognize maybe twelve words in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a lot. No, oh, there's not a lot that you like, like that, or at least there's not a lot that I would necessarily trust as. Um, not itself being a text of even, empire. Right. Because that's even, part of the problem. Even if we accept that we live in an empire, depending on what media you consume, how history was taught to you, like what the cultural values are, right. you might still think that empire is a good thing. Lots of people, well, more than they should, think that empire yeah. is good and have misconceptions about what it is, uh, as we've talked about a little, and whether or not it's about the past. No, like, like when we talk about British Empire and like the, quant- the amount of people that have positive, so like the majority, like the, at least the majority of people polled um, in, in uh, England, like had positive or neutral associations with empire. Um, and I think there is like, there, there is a lot of like, white savior kind of like ideology that goes into that and especially i mean we see that in sort of like the u.s intervention like intervention in like the middle east for example and the idea like you mentioned earlier like the idea like we are going to bring democracy to puerto rico should yeah. be very familiar I mean, to our listeners vis-a-vis yeah. like our military involvement in i the mean like a kind of rice came to mississippi state when i was an undergrad to talk um and uh before her uh like big speech, she met with a couple of people who were nominated by professors or whatever for reasons. And I was one of them. And she was going on about how it's important to spread democracy throughout the world. And I raised my hand to ask her, aren't you just describing colonialism? But I think the student association president knew what I was going to say. So he did not pick me, but like, you know, that's, that's to the, to the real point. Cause if you're, if you're, Right. Like, even in the most, even, even if we take for granted that that's the most well-intentioned thing, which is not historically not accurate, it's like, you're still going like, ah, we like our ideology. Why don't you have it too? Or, you know, people um, say, oh yeah, okay, empire was bad, but like, look at all the education and all the technology that uh, the, you know, colonizing country 
was able to bring. Right. Which is how we get to the conflict between like, like Tony was mentioning, like statehood versus independence. Sure. Like there are pragmatic. Well, I think also in terms of, you know, cause the, the, the conversation began like for people who don't have right. intimate ties to the Puerto Rican community, like, you know, what does this mean? Um, I think to, to put on my red left shoe for a second, uh, this also, I mean, at the end of the day, like, yeah, this is an ideological question. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised Condoleezza Rice said it must have been a weird experience. I want to know so much more about that <laughs> evening for you. But at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, ideology is so secondary to economics in this because right. Puerto Rico is a test case. You take an aspirin here in the United States, more than likely it's trial runs where you were, were, were Puerto Rico, right? The pharmaceutical industry, where the drugs are produced are largely in Puerto Rico, right? The U.S military used Vieques as a bombing range, a test bombing range. They tested Agent Orange there, they tested Napalm there, they tested uh, depleted uranium there, you know, poisoning poisoning the region. They were eventually kicked out due to mass protests in 2003. But they don't want to, yeah, it's about spreading democracy on, on paper. It's also about the things that, that colonialism has always been about. Right. It's resources about resources. And labor and, and strategic points. And, of, exactly. Yeah. And so what, you know, there's, there's absolutely like, there's, there's a cultural war that needs to be waged. Uh, and, you know, and I think you, you, you very much hit the nail on the head. There's tons of people who, who, who live and grow up and are, and are educated that like empire is a good thing. It's, it's, uh, it's chest thumping. And then that, that an empire of Liberty in quotes uh, is a positive thing to spread. Right. Uh, I think it, the, the other front in that war is also the, the economic side that shows like a lot of that is ideology and political rhetoric. Uh, when people are having to be confronted with, ah, uh, yeah, uh, spreading spreading democracy spreading spreading the you know the in quotes american dream with which is uh, a myth which, which is a myth see, see our previous myth. episode yeah which was just a myth um with the oh yeah yeah the 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 pillage and plunder of of these of, you know of these regions of these physical spaces right. in a very very traditionally colonialist sort of way right. and it's, I, I think i think it is our job right certainly as as academics and intellectuals to also to discuss you know the, the I, I don't know i i like to flip history on 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 people quite a, quite often where i'm like yo you know we are the united states is the first successful anti-colonial revolution that creates a state. Uh, and we are, it's drilled into our heads, this, this independence, anti-colonialism. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's extremely selective. And not only is the rhetoric hollow, it's tied to gross economics that I, I do think turn people's stomachs when they are confronted with it in particular ways. Um, but certainly that is a, a much bigger question than what, what do Puerto Ricans do? Right. Right. Because we're, we, we as, as also as citizens of the, of the continental United States, we're fighting our own cultural battles. We're dealing with, you know, our, our sort of dirty racial history. We're dealing with our own class uh, history. That's a huge question. Puerto Ricans in some ways have it easier. There's a target, right? And that target is, is their status mm -hmm. uh, and who they are. And it has pretty profound, pretty profound implications because I remember even as a kid, you know, like speaking Spanish with my grandparents and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a white skinned Puerto Rican. I don't look, you know, I'm a mixed race at all. But when uh, I remember being a child and being asked like, well, what are you, you know? So Puerto Ricans have to figure that out and, and decide that, you know, who, who are we? Uh, and this is a moment, this is a new stage in the dialectical process of figuring out that the, the very answer to that, uh, because all of us, we are all, we all have a sense of cultural schizophrenia. 
Yeah. No matter how nationalistic we are. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I want Puerto Rican independence yesterday, but, um, but at the same time, uh, how to attain that, what that means and our place um, is always under discussion and contestation. Yeah. Well, and one of the, I mean, that also ties back to one of the reasons, I and mean, part of why I asked that question is I think like, this is something that we've brought up on the show multiple times. Um, although not qu- always quite as bluntly, but like the idea that, in like mainstream U.S. politics, um, particularly national politics, there's this idea that like, especially on the left, that like there's this, it's this pivotal moment of like the search for the nation's soul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from. I mean, we've talked about all of our, uh, and I mean, our the hosts of this podcast feelings about Donald Trump. Our politics are not exactly under the rug. Um, and while yes, that's true, this is also like the the things that I think for a lot of people, like this current political moment, symbolizes have been going on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this kind of like, like, w- like seeing what's going on in Puerto Rico kind of like strikes a chord just because it's like, this is very much related to that kind of like national social strategy. Because I think this is also this moment of like, Amer- like the United States and like the average U S citizen is sort of like having to decide like what our country is again. Cause that's always, I mean that, that like the nation is always redefining itself. That's what it does. Um, and I just want to go like, and to, to me, it always goes back to like, uh, a thing that we brought taught, we talked about in the American mythologies episode and the idea, which I, this tends to be how I think of the United States is the idea that like at its best, like the declaration of independence and the American revolution and all of that was an aspirational document. It does not describe reality. It describes what people hoped would eventually happen. And then the best way you can think about it is like, because I think so many people rely on that, like, oh no, this is what we are. And it's like, no, that's what we were supposed to be. And then it was the process of getting to that place. Cause it's a very utopian conception of what the U S is. And it's one that's never existed. Yeah. Well, you know, the, to, to push back against all the MAGA hats, right? Yeah, like, right. Like, like, great. When was it great? Like, right. What are we talking about? What, right. What well, we it was only about? great for specific people who tend to be wealthy white dudes. Um, but that's another episode. Actually, that's almost every episode, to be honest with us anyway. Uh, so with that, Hannah. Yes. Say the thing. Oh, okay, sure. We, we resolved <laughs> nothing. We didn't even resolve who was going to resolve nothing. Hey, you always say the tagline. I don't, I don't. Oh, that's, well, yeah, but Neither I. Neither you or Wayne. Yeah, but I, like, sometimes Mav does it when Wayne's not here, and I forgot that Mav was gone. I don't know how I forgot Mav was gone, but look, I, I've switched time zones, and it's been a lot for me. Okay, well, as always, we've solved absolutely nothing, um, but... Although actually, but other people have been solving things, which is always heartening. And hopefully um, we've answered some questions and given some context for our listeners. If you have any follow up questions um, or any curiosities about American Empire and things we can figure out for you and get some more people on the show, uh, do let us know by commenting on our Facebook page or at VoxPopCast.com. As always, please write us an iTunes review so that other people can find the podcast and also so Matt doesn't cry himself to sleep um, because he dies without attention. Same. And remember uh, to follow follow us uh, on iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever your podcasts come from in the ether. Um, Hannah, would you like to plug anything today? Yeah, uh, just a reminder that we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Vox Popcast. And you can follow me personally. And by the time you follow me, I'll probably be less loopy at Hanley Rogers on Twitter. I will definitely not be less loopy. Um, you can find me on Instagram um, until I get banned because that's apparently a thing that's been happening today. Another podcast uh, at Just That Nerd Kid. Uh, yeah. 
Tony, do you have any socials or other things you want to plug? No, just stay abreast in Puerto Rico. Yeah, um, and depending on what goes on in the history, in, in, in history, well, yeah, technically in history, um, we may have a follow-up episode. So I would like to thank uh, Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for the outro or the outro music that is building ever so epically um, as I'm speaking. And thank you for listening. And thank you all for coming and talking and educating Akatia because it is nice. Thanks for having me. Hannah, it was nice meeting you electronically. I'm sorry, Akatia. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.